The Robert Scott the Bell Robert Show. Robert Scott Bell Show. The voice of health, freedom, and liberty. The Robert Scott Bell Show. All right, here we go. Uh, it's the Sacred Fire of Liberty Hour on the Robert Scott Bell Show, special uh, edition because, you know, I'm he- heading out to Dallas for the HEAL Conference with uh, Dr. Artis, Dr. Ely, uh, who else, uh, Dr. Schmidt, and Dr. Group. Uh, lots of folks that are doing good work trying to bring the power to heal back where it belongs with each and every one of you. And in fact, diving headlong into whether it be the medical literature, peer-reviewed articles or not, or just from a clinical experience perspective, the willingness, the ability to share, communicate openly, directly, honestly, with integrity. Uh, that's what we like to do here as well. And of course, these are the things that unfortunately our current U.S. American government, we could say, at certain levels is actively engaged in suppressing speech, freedom of speech, exchange of information, ideas that would not only help uh, the health of every American and each of you, but also help the health of America itself. And that's why we have this open debate discussion. Not a lot of debate that goes on because Jonathan Ebor and I agree on so much, uh, not surprisingly, because we have our, at our core the love of freedom, the love of liberty, and uh, the love of the the origins of this, this country. And we want to uh, achieve and, and reach those high ideals. And those of you who don't know Jonathan Ebor, my friend, constitutional attorney, he's beaten back the FDA and taken on the oligarchy many times, a world record number of eight, eight times, eight times beating the FDA and said, you know, it's not enough. They're still doing their bad stuff. We got to be, we got to do better. And he's decided, you know, I'm running for the United States Senate and we support him here and we want you to as well. Uh, so with that, let's open it up and bring him in. Jonathan Ebor back on the Robert Scott Bell Show. Jonathan. Hey, Robert. Hey, I'm I'm a bit hobbled, not physically, although I just had a, a you know dental appointment. I'm, I'm I'm good because we covered hypericum perforatum yesterday, a homeopathic remedy the FDA probably doesn't want you to know about. <laughs> but uh, I had some computer issues as I was shifting my studio around, and I had to take it in. So we're doing my backup plan is uh, dining room discussions. <laughs> I like that, Robert. It, it's very nice. I like it. I and I like your dining room too. I've been there. It's very nice. So, <laughs> but it's- you're in your office now. It's looking good too. I'm glad to be here, Robert, and I'm glad you're there. Yeah, well, look, we got a lot coming up. I just want to quickly remind everybody the 18th of, uh, let's see, September. It's a Monday. We're going to do a three-hour telethon in support of Jonathan E. Moore's run for the U.S. Senate. Mike Adams will participate. We'll have many other uh, great folks in support of your candidacy, Jonathan, and we want you to participate and support in any way you can. And then we'll have an event on the 19th we'll get you more information about as we get all those details uh, uh, together. In the meantime, Jonathan, you've got a new article here about uh, crime solutions. And I uh, think about uh, the, the lawlessness of uh, the woke left, like, you know, Minneapolis, let's defund the police. And man, people are afraid to go out in Minneapolis, a beautiful city for years. I visited there every year. And it's just like a disaster zone in many ways. Uh, and, and I'm not like, you know, we're not we're not fans of a police state per se, but some element of law enforcement to protect the public uh, is a good idea. And unless we go into smash and grab California levels of lawlessness and uh, wanton violence, et cetera. So we've got a lot of things that have occurred. You've written an article uh, at town hall about it. What kind of solutions do you proffer? Well, let's recognize that we have very unsafe cities, uh, unsafe in Boston and in Chicago and in 
uh, Baltimore and in Washington, D.C. and in Portland and in San Francisco. Uh, it's it, really we're witnessing what happens when you coddle criminals, when you allow them, release them early, when you don't prosecute them, when you defund the police. The combination of all of these things is, is creating a massive uptick in violent crime in the cities and uh, a lot of thefts. I mean, we're witnessing closures of Walmarts and other uh, retail outlets because they simply can't operate in this high theft, smash and grab environment. Why is that? Why, why has the nation turned upside down like that? Well, there's only one real answer for that. And that is the breakdown in the criminal justice system, the breakdown in law and order. And to prevent this from continuing, we have to take some rather dramatic and powerful steps to eliminate from public office those individuals who are responsible for not prosecuting crime. And that means the Soros-backed prosecutors who are dedicated to an anti-incarceration and an anti-prosecution agenda. And what they've really done is engaged in a violation of a thing called the Hobbs Act. So it's unlawful for you to seek money during a campaign based on your promise to violate the law or to or to perform some specific act uh, in furtherance of the interests of somebody giving you money. And what what has happened in this with the uh, with the the public safety and justice groups that are under Soros Mm -hmm. uh, and financed by him is that they have interacted with uh, individuals who they then put up as candidates for uh, prosecutor, DA, or Commonwealth's attorneys across the United States. These individuals agree in advance to break their oaths of office mm -hmm. and to, to violate the law by refusing to prosecute people in advance, saying we will, we will be anti-incarceration, we will be anti-prosecution, and then they get elected with all the, the Soros money, and then they fulfill that promise. So we need to amend the Hobbs Act to specifically address this kind of corruption. And we also need to um, uh, change the RICO Act, the criminal RICO Act, to embrace this kind of interaction where individuals are, are basically bribing people to engage in... Uh, activities that violate their oaths of office, that, that ensure that they obstruct justice rather than serve justice. So what they're doing now with these Soros-backed prosecutors, they get into office and then they obstruct justice by refusing to prosecute even violent criminals. Mm -hmm. And um, we also need to end this anti-bail movement, which is causing huge problems with people getting back out on the street without uh, being assessed by a, a judge as to the relative uh, merits of keeping them in jail and setting up high bail for that. Instead, with no bail, they're frequently being left out on the street or they're being thrown into jail for rapid prosecution. But ordinarily in big cities, they're being thrown back out on the street to commit crimes again. So those are among the things that we need to take care of. And in that article, I explained how to do that. I've heard that there are some uh, attorneys, like one in Texas, a fired up Texas lawyer I met at one of the reawaken tours, uh, going after some of these uh, Soros AGs and, and got one to resign recently, interestingly enough. So there may be some strategies to, to get them and remove them from office. Yeah, I think many states have decent impeachment laws, but I think, for example, in Virginia, it's very hard to impeach a Commonwealth's attorney. 
we need to modify the constitutions in those states to enable, or if, if it's not a, already a part of the constitution, the statutory law, to enable the uh, impeachment of those who refuse to fulfill their, their duties as uh, prosecutors. And uh, that too would help. We also need to enable the attorneys general and the sheriffs to have more prosecutorial powers to circumvent uh, the misdeeds of these commonwealth's attorneys and DAs. So that, for example, if, if the law were changed to make it required that the commonwealth's attorney would refer the facts and circumstances of alleged crimes to the attorneys general and to the uh, sheriff's offices, then those authorities could independently assess whether they could take action. And if the law is written correctly, they would be able to bring the action even if the commonwealth's attorney refused to do so. Because we really need to see uh, sex traffickers, drug traffickers, murderers, people accosting people in the cities who are now basically getting off scot-free. We need to see them prosecuted. And if the Commonwealth's attorneys and the district attorneys won't do it, then other authorities like the attorney general of the state or sheriffs or constitutional officers sheriffs are, and they are really... Um, appropriately assigned in situations like this to bring actions against parties on behalf of the public. They too are elected officials, but they're constitutional officers too. So they are balanced in their judgments quite frequently more so than, um, you know, others in the, in the criminal justice system. Well, the, uh, the, the ability to remove these folks is an important part of it. But again, the question is, how did we ever get to this point where you have this foreign interest by the name of Soros and now his son, uh, specifically uh, funding uh, the undermining of uh, any semblance of, uh, you know, the limits on government's action and behavior, much less uh, unleashing a lawless scenario where it encourages uh, criminal activity and behavior and rewards it rather than, rather than uh, punishing it, if you will, or incarcerating those that are engaged in ongoing criminal activity. Uh, I think that, uh, if we look at the, the behavior of government and our, our founders warned us about this, Jonathan, you know that, that that people that could be good could be corrupted, get in government. People who are corrupted already get in government and then they violate the, the spirit and the letter of that Constitution all of the time to uh, engage in self-aggrandizement, to self-enrichment and or gifts to those that, that they most favor. And unfortunately, so many people that might claim to be a principal, they like it when their guy is in power doing that. And then they ignore the fact that they're not always going to be in power. The other guy is going to do it and abuse it, too. Whereas the constraints within the Constitution, if the people would you know, engage in that and limit the government, were the only prevention for uh, uh, even an American experiment in governance to go, you know, go right versus going wrong. Well, it's a bedrock principle of uh, constitutional governance that you have equal justice under law. That justice be blind, that it not be... Uh, sensitive to your race or to your ethnic origins or to your nationality uh, and instead be blind. I mean, that's the, the quintessential example of proper justice is that justice is meted out based on a impartial assessment of an objective assessment of the facts. Now, while that's not always attainable, what they've done with the law now is make it impossible. And the reason is that they've injected race into everything so that uh, for example, the Soros entities think that there should be a breakdown in the criminal justice system to enable those who are of color not to be prosecuted because they think that 
the rest of society owes them uh, reparations and thinks that if someone who's of color steals something, mm -hmm. it's because they need it more than you do if you're not of color or uh, need it more than the, the property owner. Right. And so what you end up with is this insane environment in which property and life and liberty is sacrificed and accepted to be okay to lose if it's of certain color, while those of color who are perpetrators in, in selective instances are let go scot-free because they're said to have been victims of society's racism. This type of collective thinking is ruinous. Mm -hmm. We built the criminal justice system on a very clear model that focuses on the individual that presumes your innocence until the state proves beyond a reasonable doubt that you're guilty of an offense. And the offense is to be based on a rule of law, not to be uh, a, a rule of race. Uh, law is not to be uh, subsumed within what uh, Andrew Wilkow has referred to as meta law. And so is Lawrence Tribe, which is law that is somehow viewing everything through a lens of racism so that those who are uh, of favored races under the law are excused from criminal conduct, while those who are of disfavored races are met with the full force of the law. This kind of uh, racial injustice, which is the Ku Klux, Klux Klan's mm -hmm. uh, methodology and was snuffed out in the antebellum South, I mean, in the postbellum South, um, uh, and lingered on through the 1950s and had to be destroyed again, and again and again, has now reared its ugly head and fills academia and the law schools and is now a part of a lot of the far left thinking that is dominating the administrative state in the United States. This, this, this is the, the digression from um, the concept of colorblind justice, which had become so popular after Martin Luther King popularized it in the civil rights movement. And to think that that model, which is quite brilliant, I mean, in the end, of course, of course, and I say this with emphatically, um, skin color has absolutely nothing to do with your, your mental framework. I mean, mere pigment is so superficial and the yeah. idea that you would categorize people and their relative guilt or innocence would be determined mm -hmm. based on their skin color is so abhorrent and so antithetical to justice, but yet that is what they are bringing to America. Yeah, I think that the uh, co the concept and terms that we use, liberal, conservative, have changed over the years. Have you seen the definitions like classical liberalism is more like modern conservatism and libertarianism, yet uh, modern woke liberalism is something that even uh, what we call more classical liberals like uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. are speaking out against. And even uh, pundits like uh, Bill Maher on HBO, which, you know, right. I, I don't have... Uh, a lot of times I'll have disagreements with him, but I appreciate his willingness to speak out and engage intellectually on things. And he was just interviewed on Joe Rogan's broadcast about the very topic you bring up and trying to differentiate between liberalism and woke liberalism and this idea that everything's about race. And he even mentions the KKK. So let's uh, watch that clip now. It'll be fascinating to hear it from what we think is the other side. Check this out. Liberal is a different animal than woke. Yeah, because it is and uh, you can be woke with all the nonsense that that now implies um, But don't say 
that somehow it's an extension of liberalism. Right. Because it's most often actually an undoing of liberalism. It's so you can have your points of view and your positions on these things, but don't try to piggyback on what I've always believed. I have always believed, as liberals do, for example, in a colorblind society that the goal is to not see race at all anywhere for any reason. Yes. That's what liberals always believed all the way through. Obama, going back, Kennedy, everybody, Martin Luther King. That's not what the woke believe. They believe race is first and foremost the thing you should always see everywhere, which I find interesting because that used to be the position of the Ku Klux Klan, that we see race first and foremost everywhere. Yeah. Uh, so, again... You can have that position, but don't say that's a liberal position. You're doing something very different. Well, I know we're getting into, again, de definitions, and people are often triggered by hearing the word liberal conservative, and I'm try we try to get beyond that in terms of our uh, uh, discussion points here. But it's fascinating that someone who's a, you know very left of center in terms of his politics, although he's been very correct over the years, Bill Maher, and I give him credit when he talks about big pharma, big food, all of these things. And so, again, once again, we like a Ron Paul, we can find alignment in people that we disagree with politically on other things. But he's pointing out those of the woke left races everything. And it's like that's the, he brings the KKK in from a leftist perspective. Yeah, I think he's right. Uh, we have a spectrum where we have classical liberals on one side, which are individuals who believe in individual liberty. And then we move along and we have the Democrat liberal uh, that is of the old school. And those individuals believe in civil liberties, but not economic liberties. Mm -hmm. And they disagree with the classical liberals on that point. The classical liberals believe in civil liberty and economic liberty. They believe in individual rights. The liberal of the old Democrat variety believed in individual civil rights, but did not believe in economic liberty. The woke liberal of today doesn't believe in economic liberty and does not believe in individual liberty, does not believe in civil liberty. They are totalitarians. They believe in total government control. Right. Not only that, they believe in total adherence to polit their political dogma and censorship of those who disagree. They don't believe in any tolerance for dissent. And as a result, they're indistinguishable from Marxists. They are essentially not only cultural Marxists in that they want to modify your children and direct your children's mindsets and not allow any dissent by your children in school and in college, but they also believe in a state that takes over the private sector and re replaces all independence in the society with um, mandates over climate change that destroy the economy and cause a bureaucratic planned economy in its place to exist. Uh, they believe in um, making it impossible for competition in elections by basically inviting fraud, by having the federal government unconstitutionally usurp the power of the states over the election system. They believe in packing the Supreme Court to make it essentially reflective of a leftist legislative body and to be uh, basically intimidated into uh, interpreting the law to mean whatever they wish it to mean to achieve their ends. So we're, this is the contest between 
uh, individual liberty and authoritarianism or totalitarianism. Um, it is it is not a contest like the old days, which was over whether the government should exercise a regulatory role over the economy and should tax and redistribute income. Bad as that is from my vantage point uh, as a theory, nonetheless, it invited debate. But when someone's saying uh, in the woke liberal spectrum, one uh, side of the spectrum, when they're saying, I won't listen to what you say unless you agree with me. I, they're in an echo chamber where they only want to hear their own voice. Well, this explains, Jonathan, also why uh, the modern left, if you will, uh, is, is all in favor of shutting down freedom of speech. Something that, you know, let's say classical liberals would go, you know, that's, you know, First Amendment's very important. And then it's suddenly abandoned. We're scratching our heads going, who are these people? What do they believe? And, and it's important to differentiate. And again, I appreciate Bill Maher and Bobby Kennedy pointing out those distinctions because, you know, there's reasonable differences between people politically and otherwise. And then there's totalitarian uh, cultural Marxist and, and, you know, governmental collectivists. And, you know, the White House uh, appointees now are lying still about what these covid injections will do for kids. I mean, they're, they're going out on, uh, you know, media tours, right? right. See, the CDC deputy director, Nirav Shah, was in the New York Times promising that vaccinating kids with COVID boosters now or new versions of it would stop them from transmitting COVID to grandparents. And here's the quote. Shaw argues that children over six months old should get a COVID shot this fall, even though their own COVID risk is very low to non-existent, I'll add. Here's the quote. We should be thinking bigger than just ourselves, he told uh, in this New York Times article. Do you want to see your grandpa? Do you want to hang out with your grandma? Are you really sure you're not going to give COVID to them? Even some boosted older people get severe versions of COVID. I mean, again, the fear mongering of the first yeah, round yeah. is back. And I mean, this is absurd. You, you take a child, you force them to be vaccinated, even though the vaccine has no efficacy in the kid and has brings about all sorts of potential harms. And in addition to that, uh, you ignore entirely the fact that children who get it have ordinarily mild symptoms and have fulsome immune responses. Then you, t you selectively take them in a society that will have COVID running through it. And you say that children are to be uniquely feared by grandparents because they may carry a disease and that children themselves should have this sense of guilt uh, or be guilt, have this guilt put upon them by their parents that they may infect their grandparents. I mean, the whole thing is so repulsive because they're using psychology against families, turning families against one another in order to promote their objective, which is universal vaccination. <clears throat> Why universal vaccination? Well, universal vaccination, not because there's a public health necessity for it, as we discussed children have mild symptoms, they ordinarily uh, have fulsome immune responses, which can benefit them for months and months, if not their entire lives. And um, the reason is, yes, control. The reason is to control people and to ensure profitability for those that make the vaccines, to ensure that those who have already made billions, if not trillions of dollars, from the vaccine are enriched further despite the absence of sound medical uh, support, no long-term clinical trials, no efficacy proven beyond doubt, 
rather a still experimental vaccine in so many respects with uh, an enormous uh, litany of adverse effects that have been suffered by the population. And we have a better understanding of why. And so even in the face of all that, they still bang the drum of this is safe and efficacious. Every kid needs to be vaccinated. Everyone in your family needs to be vaccinated on and on. You know what? They have about 5% compliance right now. That's because most people comprehend that this, they've been lied to over and over again. Yeah. They were told if you get vaccinated, you won't get the virus. Well, they got the virus. The they were told if you're vaccinated, you won't carry the virus. Well, they did carry the virus. They gave it to other people. The big lie too in this situation with the kids is, okay, you get vaccinated, then you don't have to worry about your grandparents getting it. Oh, really? Well, if you're vaccinated, you can still carry the virus. Who are the purveyors of misinformation here? And you get vaccinated, you may still carry the virus and give it to your grandparents. You're probably less likely to have it and carry it if you don't get the injection. That's right, Robert. And they say that, you know, those who are vaccinated, as a recent study, those who are vaccinated are more likely to uh, be infected with COVID-19 than those who are not vaccinated. Mm -hmm. And of course, we were derided, all the holistic health professionals, medical too. Uh, for speaking out about these things. And we're called purveyors of misinformation and disinformation. That's so obvious now. I, I Obviously, to us, it was obvious because, you know, look, our first uh, thought is when there's a government pronouncement is to be suspicious at the very least because yeah. the nature of those who would own and control government, particularly in the uh, Biden administration, do, doing it to next next level. But it's not the first time we've been lied to by government. Our founders knew that if we did not constrain government, bind them down by the change of the Constitution, and it wasn't going to be the Constitution doing it itself, that we would end up in a scenario much like this, the disaster that we see, we are seeing. And some would are questioning now the preponderance of propaganda for a new round of COVID as an excuse to somehow encourage mail-in ballots again and more election fraud. And now if you say that, suddenly you're also somehow a, a, a criminal for speaking out and questioning uh, the integrity of elections. Yeah, uh, it, it's very interesting how this Marxist kind of a movement um, is succeeding in bludgeoning the opposition into silence. So in an environment preceding this, we had robust debates. We would have people on one side of an issue or another. We respected them both. We allowed them to argue. They would present their positions and we would decide for ourselves. That was understood to be the way in which a free people operate. Now you have a situation where if you dare dissent, you're doxxed, you're kicked off the platforms one kind or another, uh, you're condemned, they go after you, they try to destroy your employment, they try to uh, villainize you, falsely accuse you of things. I mean, these are vindictive and, and evil measures employed to completely wipe out anyone who disagrees with a, a monologue on an issue. Uh, and they, they, they present their positions as if they are proven conclusively true when inherently they cannot be. Uh, like with the COVID situation. I mean, the whole idea that uh, you would say, if you know, ironically, if, if a private party were without government sanction to communicate to the public that something was safe and efficacious you'd have FTC complaints going in and you'd have FTC going after them because right. they couldn't prove to a conclusive degree that the, the vaccine was safe and efficacious. 
when the government tells the lie to the public, there's no such authority. Rather, the government lines up and, and salutes and says, you dare not say anything against this in this massive movement of censorship, which is the greatest degree of censorship we've ever experienced in our history with people like Dr. Robert Malone and others kicked off platforms, condemned when they were raising the ultimate truths about the problems with the vaccine and why it should be considered to be dangerous. And they were just condemned right and left. And of course, as time went on, they were proven right. And it only at the expense of 1.1 million Americans' lives. And then with the ivermectin, you're gonna you're gonna talk about a story here in a minute about ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. Perhaps I should wait and let you do that. No, no, it's a, a drive right in. You're doing segues for me, and you're you're highly professional while doing it. <laughs> well, I I just it's so appalling to see that how FDA rewrites history. Now, everybody knows that they were trying to make the American public avoid hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. They first started out allowing it, but as soon as it became apparent that the public was looking to early treatment instead of vaccination as a method by which to overcome this, a lot of people who were reluctant to take the vaccine when they became ill in the first stages, they would go and get ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine uh, and they were largely successful in reducing the severity of the disease. Well, when that uh, became apparent and the drug companies became aware that, that, that people were shifting from an exclusive reliance on the vaccine, they realized profitability was at stake. Here you got ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine for pennies and, and compare that with the vaccine, which is, you know, the government's financing a massive amount money into the pharmaceutical industry to pump every single American full of the stuff. And so when you have this, this whole movement, they start out saying, oh, you know, we need 60% compliance and we'll be set. Oh no, 75%. Oh no, 85%. Oh no, no, 100% compliance. Uh, the drug industry is profiting massively from this, yeah. but they don't want to lose a cent, right? So here comes the, a, a real potential competitor hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, early treatment. And people are saying, you know, the risks of the vaccine, I don't want to take it. I want to try one of these early treatments if I get it. Well, they had to get rid of that. And they did. And the government was right behind them. The government made it sound like if you took ivermectin, you'd end up uh, overdosing because you might take an animal drug. Yeah, turn into you know? a horse. Yeah. And so, I mean, the whole thing was just outrageous. And good thing that that Fifth Circuit judge... Uh, the Fifth Circuit uh, judges uh, caught on to that, and, and you know, sir, defense, Jonathan, and you've you've dealt in these courts against FDA. They're like, well, we really didn't say what you said we said that we actually said, or we didn't mean it that way. And besides the fact we have sovereign immunity, why even here? Yeah, they used to in in the old days when I came in in the Reagan administration, there was a FCC, not FDA, but Federal Communications Commission commissioner named Newton Minow. Actually, he was in the 60s before the Reagan years. But the, the adage related to his uh, tenure uh, lived on and still lives to this day. And what he said was that you don't actually have to have a formal regulation in place. You just raise the specter of government action against a person and you can change their behavior and change their speech. So he called it government by raised eyebrow. 
So the government would peer down upon you with a threatening glare and the FCC would. And then suddenly that area of communication with which you had a problem would disappear. And that's what they did. That's what FDA did with ivermectin. They said, oh, wow. oh this may be unsafe. Oh, this is potentially dangerous. Oh, don't do this. And, and what, what the Biden that- administration did with the social media networks. The same thing. Right. Like you're talking about a behavior that pre-exists COVID, like I've talked about and we've talked about together, about all the freedom of speech issues that were going on long before it became obvious to so many more of us in America. I've been speaking on my radio show since 1999 going, dude, you think you have freedom of speech? Just speak about natural health, natural medicine and disease, and you'll find out how free you're not. And then it, it just rolled bigger and bigger and bigger because very few of us were speaking out because it was like, well, that doesn't affect me. It's just those crazy herbalists and homeopaths, you know? It's like, when do we learn from history that if you allow the government an inch of violation of the Constitution, where is it going to go? Where we are today and even more if we let it. And now you have people in power through all the departments and the agencies who do not respect the Constitution at all. In fact, they're largely oblivious to constitutional constraints on their power. So they do whatever they want. And so was it a surprise that the FDA took this position against ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine? Absolutely not. What's your point though, is they rewrite history. So there they are in federal court being drawn uh, up on on this charge that they had engaged in these acts of censorship and it interfered with the availability of, in the practice of medicine by doctors with ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. And they're saying, oh, no, no, we didn't do that. Uh, the mere fact that we raised issues about this, no, no, that's not an act or a regulation. That didn't do anything at all to stop a doctor from prescribing. Oh, really? Uh, it did do, yeah, it was regulation by raised eyebrow. And what it did do is send signals immediately to public health authorities in the states that, hey, uh, consider taking this person's license like they did with, you know, Dr. Meryl Nash. They took her, Nash, they took her license, Mm -hmm. they suspended her license because she saved a couple of people with hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin uh, in Maine, and it was forbidden. And the reason why it was forbidden by the governor of Maine and by the the medical board in Maine was because the FDA took the position that it isn't safe or that it's unefficacious and won't work against the actual evidence. In fact, the FDA relied on really lame evidence to suggest a lack of efficacy and ignored a whole volume of evidence Mm -hmm. that supported the efficacy of ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. It was used all over the world. I mean, these substances were used uh, in, I think, Brazil uh, it was the primary source of treatment. It was in other countries, even France, I think, for a time. Uh, and um, they had remarkably good results. I mean, you had you had it, the instance of death from COVID was substantially lower per capita, I believe, in uh, in in uh, Brazil than it was in other parts of the world. And Brazil had ivermectin available in the first instance all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so. I just I just wonder what you could do once again, maybe inform the folks that are watching and listening later. Uh, Jonathan E. Mord, U.S. Senator Jonathan E. Mord could do to make some changes again with an oligarchy gone wild, even an executive branch gone wild, which the oligarchy technically is part of the executive branch. Right. It's all the branches to put together in the uh, bureaucratic state. Uh, but it's still an executive branch activity. And the president will go look the other way and do nothing about it. In fact, 
probably loves the fact that that they have that much power. But very few in Congress and the Senate have pushed back against this power, maybe until now. There have been a few voices over the years. Once again, what do you see doing differently or something that would be more efficacious in terms of you know, defanging that oligarchy, eliminating them because they are patently unconstitutional, despite the fact that, as you point out, many in government, maybe many elected officials who take an oath to the Constitution, barely pay it lift service anymore. So there are a whole bunch of things that need to be done, one of which is a bill that I wrote for Ron Paul called the Congressional Responsibility and Accountability Act. And what this was do is take any government regulation, proposed regulation, and it would have no force or effect under law unless passed into law by Congress, making the people's elected representatives responsible for all law, which is the requirement of Article One, Section One of the Constitution. Another thing is to take away the FDA's jurisdiction over health claims. Um, there, there's no, under the Constitution, prior restraints are forbidden. Uh, and yet here we have the Food and Drug Administration forbidding any company that sells a dietary supplement or other food product from communicating to you the, the proven health benefits of the product unless FDA sanctions it and, and reviews it and, and approves it, taking months and months and months to do so. And all the while you're deprived the information. In fact, there's a great dearth of science in the marketplace, health marketplace, and in the food and supplement marketplace because the FDA stands in the way. Well, that's not what the First Amendment's all about. The First Amendment's all about uh, putting the burden on the government to prove something to be false before it can be removed, not to put the burden on you to prove something true to the government's satisfaction before you speak. And so we, we will get rid of that jurisdiction and have people be able to receive directly in the marketplace information. You'll still have prosecution for fraud. If somebody lies to you and causes you to expend money on it, You can they can go after them for fraud under the... Uh, law without FDA having a prior restraint. And then when it comes to the drug approval process, big joke right now, mm -hmm. the drug industry has since the, the uh, Kefauver amendments to the Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act has had control over determining safety and efficacy and does that based on the drug company's own uh, clinical trials. Right. Now, this invites a massive conflict of interest. You're the proponent of the drug. You want to profit from it. You want it approved. You determine what clinical evidence goes to the FDA. See any problem with that? I do. Uh, there's no independent evaluation or testing by the whatsoever. FDA. And you know what? The FDA is a total handmaiden or captive of the drug industry. The solution lies in removing the drug approval process from government, mm -hmm. to put it into private hands and to have that done under a statutory scheme that identifies specifically what proof is required for safety and efficacy and leave it up to private labs that are blinded. That is, the drug companies don't know where their uh, drug review application has been assigned and just have the Justice Department or some other entity assign it in a blinded manner to companies that have been authorized under the statute to perform independent private testing of safety and efficacy. They then issue a report. If it's safe and efficacious, they make that determination. Then it's available to the public. You can use it and you can also know reservations about it and risks about it and make your own judgment. If it's too unsafe, if it, if it poses a risk and doesn't actually have much efficacy, then you'll hear that and it won't be available. 
Jonathan, uh, you're not naive about these things. You know what you're up against, and we all know what we're up against because, you know, we believe in such freedom. And the drug industry has become as powerful or perhaps more powerful than any other lobbying group to, to Congress and even, you know, in terms of elections and, and uh, putting money into elections. Uh, if, if freedom of speech were to come back in the health arena, I posit that there would be a fraction of a, a percentage of the need for the drugs that they say are the only reason we're alive, right? We've Correct. been deceived in that realm, but they've become so powerful that they believe they're entitled to the monopoly marketplace that they've garnered through their purchasing of the power, if you will. Okay. And, and so a wholesale change in the belief of what is government's role in protecting the public, it's really protecting what? The drug industry from competition that we would find from natural substances that could certainly uh, meet the scientific scrutiny and clinical efficacy far superseding. I've seen in my practice, much less working with other doctors and non-doctors alike in health in the health arena, uh, succeed where they have failed miserably. And in fact, the failure is not just that the drugs don't work, but they actually provide for the manifestation of 10, 15, 20 other diseases that didn't exist. Talk about pre-existing conditions making them exist. And so we have a disastrous investment in a one-size-fits-all only monopoly medicine. This is not me speaking out against doctors or all drugs. The recognition is in the free market of ideas and real scientific scrutiny. We would know what is available and what is efficacious, what is not, what are the real risk profiles. So we can have fully informed consent. And it'd be a wonderful a, a renaissance of health and healing in, our, in America. We're seeing depleted uh, young people. They can't, cancer is on the rise in young people after all the wars on cancer that's been declared since the 70s. Also, infertility on the rise in young people. We can't even replace our, 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 our people. This is a real disaster moving forward, and it's part and parcel to this medical monopoly, not helping people where it can in certain circumstances, but actually causing the problems they pretend to want to prevent or uh, counter. Yeah, uh, there's enormous amount of evidence of this. So you have uh, my book, for example, Global Censorship of Health Information, where I explain several instances where the government had approved unsafe substances and uh, suppressed the information about the lack of safety, attacked medical reviewers. Same thing in the rise of tyranny. I give several examples of that. So the point is, uh, if we had a free market, of health information, the individual would be in control of what goes into your body as never before, because you'd have access to all sorts of information. You would decide for yourself whether or not you wish to consume a particular substance in the treatment of disease with far more knowledge than you do now. So now the typical person is beholden to a physician who won't even ordinarily tell you the full spectrum of adverse events that are associated with the drug but we'll recommend a drug and it's basically on a trust system. You go in, you think the doctor's gonna, you know, you can trust the doctor, doctor gives you a drug. You don't know what adverse events are coming down the road. You take the drug and then suddenly you have an adverse event. You may or may not associate it with the drug. You may not know why you're feeling the way you do, but it may be an adverse event associated with a drug. Well, you also may not know that the drug increases your risk of cancer, or you may not know that it increases your risk of heart disease or that it increases your risk of liver failure. You may not know that, and you may be prone to that. You may not even have had an examination sufficient uh, to determine your relative level of risk. And so you become shocked as down, down the road, you start hearing things about the drug that you took, right? And you don't know whether it's a ticking time bomb in you or not. So all that sort of thing is a result of a, a broken FDA, 
an FDA that is controlled by the very industry it's supposed to regulate mm -hmm. and by a, a, a corrupt system in which those who are in positions of power in the FDA stand to benefit financially if they pick the right winners and losers in the regulatory process so that when they get out of the government employment, they can enjoy lucrative post-government employment in one of these entities that they favored. So you see, it's a highly corrupt system. When politics reigns over science like it does at the FDA, you can never have objective uh, reality. Instead, what you have is what the politicians want you to have. And so you have all these conflicts of interest that are waived on the drug review committees. You have drug panels that might just, uh, uh, by some amazing achievement, actually give a fair assessment of the risks of a drug and, and recommend against its approval only to have that panel disband and then another panel form that uh, the commissioner hand selects again that is deemed to be favorable to the drug and then the commissioner will approve the drug or the commissioner will just approve the drug against the advice of the panel and against the yeah. medical reviewers at the FDA. Why? The commissioner is a political appointee. The commissioner is ordinarily a person who has a strong affinity for the drug industry, ordinarily comes out of the drug industry. That's been the history. So the FDA is a big fat captive of the enormous pharmaceutical monopolies in the world. And that is why we have such a horrible system of drug approval. And then when it comes to the medical system, you've got Medicare setting the standards of review. You have doctors intimidated into a one size fits all approach to disease. And you have very little innovation by doctors for fear that if they do innovate, they'll be called to task for failing to meet the standard of care for the treatment of whatever disease it is. We need to have a new approach, which is one in which we encourage innovation, competition, and full information for patients so that they can decide for themselves what's in their own best interest. And that doctors, it'll be a patient-centric system mm -hmm. so that doctors are not answering to bureaucrats for the, your treatment, but are answering to you. And that's what we need to do with medicine. And, and it's a long way. We're a long way from a free enterprise system in medicine, uh, but we have to get back to it. And you know what? The costs of medicine are ridiculous and they blame that on uh, competition. And that's ridiculous. It's the absence of competition. It's the absence of it, yeah. Having a monopoly, there's no downward force to provide for innovation and cost savings in a legitimate way. The cost savings done in a monopoly are illusory at best and or they're shifted and like we we, we saved you a bit here but it goes up there so the idea of uh, capitalism and free market capitalism specifically because again i recognize the crony capitalism that exists within our system now is not real free market uh i believe truly that if we had the freedom of speech we're, we're talking about here uh the freedom to innovate doctors and scientists alike and uh, homeopaths and herbalists and doctors all getting together because they really go into it for the right reasons we would see uh Again, a renaissance might be an understatement of health in America and cost savings. And you would unleash the American economy. We would become, a, a, let's say, a. Uh, you heard about medical tourism. People in America, they leave America to get the kind of treatment they're not allowed to get here. You think about reversing that trend and the world would come to America for the innovation that we are famous for. But despite, you know, what we've done in a monopoly. But imagine if the monopoly were lifted and real freedom of scientific inquiry and engagement were, were unleashed in this country again. Yeah. Um, fully informed consent is really the perfect model for medicine. Fully informed consent. 
where you are a partner with the healthcare provider in mastering your health, uh, rather than you being and the and the medical healthcare provider being the victim of government, where government is essentially playing the role of second guessing every judgment the doctor makes in your care. So you've got a third party not in the room who's not answerable to you as a patient. Right. Sits there as a bureaucrat and says to the doctor you may or may not communicate this or recommend this. Uh, and the doctor is kind of just stuck. So the doctor can sit there and know about ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and think to himself or herself, I would really rather do that for my family than this jab, which has all these adverse effects. Hmm. But the government wants him to promote the jab and if he contradicts the jab, he might lose his license. And if he refuses to give the jab, he might lose his license. And if he recommends ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine, he might lose his license. So what does he do? He goes along mm -hmm. because he doesn't want to end up not being a doctor anymore. Right. He doesn't want his whole career and his whole family right. structure and everything to be changed by virtue of the fact that a government bureaucrat's dissatisfied. Yeah, it's astonishing how far we strayed from the principles of freedom and what that means. And I don't know if anybody's been in Congress or the Senate uh, that has introduced the Congressional Responsibility and Accountability Act since Ron Paul. Ron Paul has endorsed you for the United States Senate, uh, as well as many others. And, I, I, you know, I think that the environment is much better suited to receive the, that intent, that pr those principles that are within that uh, the proposed legislation that you would bring to the fore right away in the Senate. Uh, but I, I'm just not aware of anybody bringing this up since Ron Paul. I know his son is in, in there, Mike Lee. There are a few others that have, I think, a, at the very least, they're sympathetic to it, if not overtly, uh, actively engaged in supporting something like this. But I'm encouraged. Well, I, by I you. wrote this bill many years ago for Ron Paul called the Access to Medical Treatment Act, which would allow you, based on fully informed consent, to have access to an unapproved drug uh, if you were terminally ill, so that you wouldn't have to just use chemo and radiation, for example, with cancer mm -hmm. uh, as your only solution, you could have an experimental drug used instead, one not approved by FDA for the treatment of the disease. And FDA opposed this and said it was the end of uh, the world as we know it. And um, Ron Paul introduced it a number of times, I believe. Anyway, um, when he left Congress, his son introduced a bill called the Right to Try Bill, which is mirrored after that Access to Medical Treatment Act that I wrote some 20 years before that. Hmm. And the Right to Try Bill was signed into law by President Trump, and it's the law today, so that you can have access to an experimental drug if you're terminally ill, no. which was a huge achievement. And no. it only became possible because a man named Donald Trump was willing to take that action as president of the United States. His, all of his predecessors, back to when I wrote it, which was during the Bush years, um, did not, you know, they weren't willing to do that because it offended the drug industry and right. they, they were largely beholden to the drug industry. But Donald Trump didn't care. He knew it was the right thing to do and he did it. Yeah, and it's fascinating in the journey to uh, talk about the various presidential candidates and all the things that are going on. It's clear that the establishment uh, on both sides seemingly does not want Trump to be believe and run uh, for the presidency. And this is not an endorsement of everything he did. We certainly have uh, concerns about some of the things. And now he's apparently confronting some of those things as he's been hit time and time again with the side effects associated with the, the injections. Uh, but 
be that as it may, I'm grateful that he did sign that into law and I would expand it to include all natural substances, not just unapproved new quote unquote experimental drugs, right. because there are a lot of people in America. In fact, you could argue a majority of Americans that already utilize natural remedies, dietary supplements for their health and would desire even in dire circumstances to use those things with fully informed consent, of course. But recognize that anytime you would use it by definition under the law, it becomes a drug. In other words, mm. If you used a supplement to treat terminal illness, it would be a drug by virtue of the fact that it's being used to treat the terminal illness. So you so, can argue under that law that, yes, I can, I want right? to use this. Okay, that's fantastic. Yeah, it would have to be undergoing a clinical trial. So you'd have to actually have the drug manufacturer sponsoring a clinical trial for treatment. Hmm. But you would, if it was, then you would be able to access it even if it was a natural substance. Yeah. Excellent. All right. We got a few more minutes to, to wrap up here. Sacred Fire of Liberty edition of the Robert Scott Bell Show as I'm heading out to Dallas. We have all the links to upcoming events at robertscottbell.com and the uh, upcoming events tab, including the Health Freedom Expo, which is the middle of uh, October. Typically, I think the 13th and 14th, they have the Trinity live event leading into it. Jonathan always opens it up and he's part of the Health Freedom panel as well. And uh, it's just an, an amazing opportunity to get together. I remember a year ago, go or so almost now that we had launched our first event there at the health freedom expo announcing your candidacy as well which was really exciting and uh, that you'll be back again for this next one shout out to uh, julie whitman klein and the family at trinity they're also supporting you and they'll be supporting us with our telethon coming up on the uh, 18th of september a monday where uh, Mike Adams and uh, Clay Clark are donating the first hour of our show, which is not usually simulcast. We're going to be able to simulcast, simulcast on Brideon.tv. Our second hour on Mondays always is. And the third hour, uh, Dr. Hotze is also donating his hour to us. So we have three straight hours simulcasting on Brideon.tv on Monday the 18th. And we'll be announcing a, a local event uh, in Utah on the 19th. We'll get you that information as soon as we confirm everything. Uh, and I know that if, if you have, if you're not sure what's coming up, I know there are upcoming events all of the time and some are just popping up so quickly for you, Jonathan, as you're traveling the state of Virginia, much less traveling all the United States to talk to folks that recognize that having you in the U.S. Senate will benefit everybody from all the states uh, and all the states themselves who believe in the Constitution, limited government and freedom. Right. I, uh, the other day, I, I can't remember which, uh, I think it might've been Andrew Wilkow again, but, uh, Andrew Wilkow, I was on his TV show and he said, um, we have to have constitutional conservatives in the Congress. We have to have constitutionalists like Emord. And then he said something to the effect that, can you imagine having Mike Lee, Rand Paul and Jonathan Emord in the United States Senate together? That would be a real uh, dream come true because I think we would be a very fulsome force for defense of the Constitution against all of those who are in the administrative state. Uh, they've been strong advocates of constitutional restraints on government power. And I think um, I, I, I think I can bring something to bear from some 38, 40 years of activity and then also uh, the long history of reading, researching and studying the Founding Fathers, their intent, Constitution, its intended meaning and limitation. Yes. on power. And so it would be great to work with them. Absolutely. And everywhere I go, whether you're there or not, Jonathan, you know, you're with me uh, when I'm at the event this weekend in Dallas uh, with Dr. Artisan folks, uh, I'll be speaking about 
you and how important it is to get behind your uh, uh, candidacy, as well as at the Biomed Expo coming up the following week, the 14th through the 17th in Las Vegas, Nevada. We've got a lot of health freedom people there, uh, some of whom surprises me, but yet haven't learned about what's going on. Sometimes it's very Virginia centric. I understand that, but I'm trying to bring national attention to, you know, to what you're doing because it'll impact us all for the better. So as we uh, wrap up here, about 30 more seconds, uh, any other, uh, uh, let's say, uh, I say closing statements as an attorney, but you know what I mean, opening for freedom. Well, we have a lot of events coming up, Robert. So the Petersburg event tonight uh, in Petersburg, Virginia, I'm going to speak there before a GOP group there. Um, we, we just came back from this fantastic set of events we had over the weekend. So we went to a uh, area of Northern Virginia in Falls Church mm -hmm. that is about 90% Vietnamese. And one of my supporters, very strong supporter, um, uh, is uh, Vietnamese. And she was able to communicate with the people there and explain what our positions were on the issues. And boy, oh boy, they, they were so great. receptive. And it was so fantastic because they're so strongly anti-communist. Right. So yeah. strongly in love with the foundations of this country and the principles of liberty. Mm -hmm. So they were putting our signs up in their shops and they were uh, taking the, these Vietnamese flyers. Yeah, I mean, it's tremendous. Yeah. We also spoke uh, spoke to um, uh, at a mosque mm -hmm. uh, with a large congregation of, of Muslims. About yeah. half of them were right with us, Robert. Yeah. Um, Jonathan, the freedom message is resonating, and I appreciate yeah. you, my friend. So until next week for the Sacred Fire of Liberty, we're going to sign off uh, for now and remind you that the power to heal, even politically, is yours.